All right, what is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined once again by Coach Andrea. Andrea, as always, thank you for being back on. Hey, thanks for having me back. Of course. So, first of all, fill us in. Last time we talked, we talked pretty in-depth about your entire photo shoot process, what that looked like. And since then, it's been super cool to see the results. The pictures turned out so good from that. Um, what has the last couple of weeks since then been looking like for you? What have you been up to with your nutrition, your training? So the, the pictures were on a Wednesday and from that day, I just kind of like ate a normal <laughs> diet, which that's very vague. I don't, it's, <laughs> I just kind of like ate like my normal meals, but wasn't super strict on anything. I think I had like 120 carbs or something like that. Um, and then since then have just been reverse dieting. So I've added, um, just 20 carbs at this point, but I also haven't been perfect. Like before leading up to it, I was really, really like 99.5% on, um, now it's been more like I've averaged like maybe three or four grams over, but it's, definitely been a little bit more up and down over the cross over the course of the week. So, um, I'd say I, I haven't added a ton of carbs, but I've added a little bit more flexibility, if that makes sense. So by, and by being more flexible, you're saying you're going like four grams over your carb targets (laughs) on average over the week. So there's some days I'm a little over, some days I'm a little under. Um, And I also have have not eaten the exact same things each day like I was before. Okay. That's so funny. I, since I started working with Alex, I've been much more like I'm trying to hit everything within, I've tried to hit my fat within two grams of the target and my carbs and protein within three grams of the target. But before that, I was always very much like coaches I'd worked with in the past. Like I know with Steve, I had what I had a 20 or 30 gram range to fall within for my fats. And then it was like the plus or minus 20 on your protein and um, fill the remainder of that with carbs. So it was like, you could like have these big, big, big variances from day to day. So it's so funny to like, and even for me, that's like, I know when I initially started, I would be like 10 grams, like 10 grams over my carbs or 10 grams under or like 10 grams over on protein and like maybe like five grams over on fat or five grams under and I was like, Hey, like let's tighten this up a little bit. I was like, what? Oh, I thought <laughs> so it's been, but it's just what I can definitely like see the value in it, especially when we're like, like we're adding 20 grams of carbs, like as a total, like that's a very small, like going over five grams is a bigger deal. Um, it's, it's interesting though. Cause that's definitely like, I know like the coaches that I've worked in the past for me, that was just like, yeah, I'm good as long as I'm within like 10 to 15 grams for most things and maybe like five grams for fat. So it's definitely like been, but it's, I for sure see the value in it. And it's not really like, it's hard once you put a focus on it. For, so you're going through a lot slower than how you reverse diet, which is probably a good experience for you. is different than how we typically reverse or how your reverse diet is different than how we would typically reverse diet a client. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah. And I think that for me, it's really good because I have had those days where it's like, okay, I went, I went a little bit too far over. I'm going to need to pull it back by a bit. And then it's more like Mm -hmm. how my diet was before. Um, 
I also wasn't so extremely lean that I needed to jump things up very quickly just to get healthy. Mm -hmm. So taking it slower. And then also knowing that my blood glucose had been high or my fasted blood glucose had been high um, before. I think that's another big reason why she's having to go slower just to make sure that we're like building things up in a smart way and making sure that my body can handle that without anything being unhealthy. Has your biofeedback been pretty good? Yeah, it has been. I really didn't feel bad before. Like my biofeedback wasn't really bad at all before either. So yeah, it's been good. And that's the thing with reverse dieting too. Like if biofeedback is in a good place, I've probably pushed, like when I first got really into nutrition, there was a big, like everyone was saying you have to like reverse diet so slowly. And I remember like after my first photo shoot, I felt just like balls and it was like, all right, we're going to go from no macro adjustments. We're going to like go from five cardio sessions a week before, right? And then we're going to add five grams of carbs here. It was like such an unnecessarily slow process that I think like for me, that's led me to like, hey, like this is stupid. <laughs> I didn't necessarily do it this kind slow. Kind of other way. But I think like in a situation like that, like your biofeedback is good. You don't feel like shit. You don't feel like you're like in a massive deficit or anything like that. And you're not like unsustainably lean per se. There's also nothing wrong with like taking it very slow in a case like that. I think it, would you agree that it, sh- would you say it should probably be based on biofeedback or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think biofeedback is a big, big part of it. Um, mm-hmm. And and your biofeedback is just going to be better if you haven't dieted for like a really long time. And if you haven't gotten to a level of leanness that isn't sustainable, I think that's the biggest piece of it. And that that's always reflected in the biofeedback. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So basically, and this isn't even like a question that we had, but reverse dieting should probably be based on, and I mean, even like in your case, like it wouldn't be wrong for us to jump up to like 80 to 90% of maintenance right out of the gate, but it should probably be based on how lean you got your biofeedback. And also then from there, like if those two are in a good place, if those aren't in a good place, I would say probably it's smart for most people to jump up pretty aggressively to like right around your estimated maintenance. But if those are in a good place, then it's probably smart to base it on, okay, what can you as like a client stick to the easiest, right? Like what's more likely for us to get a successful outcome here, like going a little bit slower or being a little bit more aggressive would be my take on it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Cool. All right. Are you ready to actually with your training, have you still been in a neuro phase? Yeah. So this is, what is it? Week three. Yeah. Week three of neuro phase. So I've got, I've got the rest of this week and then next week. And then I don't know what we're doing next. She said she's got like a tentative, you know, mental plan and just based off of biofeedback, we'll see what happens. So I'm really interested to see what happens with carbs when I do switch out of the neural phase and it, that might stay for another mesocycle just so that I can get my carbs up higher. But I honestly don't, don't know what she's going to okay. do with it. Okay. What, what do you want to accomplish next? I want to maintain a, like a better level of leanness than I was at okay. before. Um, okay. And then as far as like muscle groups, um, the focus is going to be lats and hamstrings. 
Okay. So bringing those up and we are, let's see in, I'm trying to see what today's date is like a month and a half. We're going to get a prime rack. So that's going to open up a whole oh, bunch that's of. That's going to be a month and a half. Movement. Yeah. Let's yeah. go. I know. I'm so excited for it. Um, so we'll have some cables to work with and that's going to be so much easier to work my back with stuff like that. You are going to love that. I can't believe that you guys have held out for so long. I know when we <laughs> had just like, when I had just the one little pulley, like you have that just drove me crazy because it felt like it was impossible to now granted, like now I would probably have done like a half kneeling pull down or something like that. And you could probably make, or even like a chest supported pull down. Like I didn't know what that was when I had that. So that makes quite a bit of difference as well. But having the, it's just so damn nice to have those two adjustable cables. <laughs> like that. I'm glad you guys pulled the trigger on that. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. Cool. Um, did you basically get just like the attachments that I have, or did you get anything additional? Uh, we didn't get the pull up thing because yeah, I just went and I bought some it. of those. Oh, you haven't? Oh, I used it there and it was, it was super nice. But then I just went and bought those, um, angles, 90 grips and I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, we can kind of like do the same, the same thing. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that's that and the dip bars is the only thing that we didn't get. Okay. Okay. They they do ding you pretty hard on the because it's like when you look at the initial rack, it's like, oh hey, this isn't too bad at all. And then when you like <laughs> add all the attachments, it's like, oh hey, my <laughs> the price of my rack just doubled. Oh um, yeah. The only thing I wish I would have gotten differently there is the split squat roller. Oh I still really? Kind of want to order one of. Yeah, which I use my play extension roller for split squats right now. It's not like it would be that much different. I just yeah. I know, for some reason, I, I feel I like it'd be a little bar bit down low, and I I mm. put the hip bar pad on the bar and then put the bar I have down low. Always hated doing that for some reason. I've never that's just like never been very comfortable for me to do. Huh. Yeah, I can't but imagine anyway. it's that much different than a than a bar roll than the actual real one but i've not used one of those actually so okay okay anyways the listeners probably have no idea what we're talking about right now so (laughs) let's go ahead and move this on and get into some questions all right so let's work through we have a decent amount from our facebook group as well as from instagram let's start with instagram and then we'll dig into the facebook questions so first question i have is best and i'm going to push this one over to you best way to learn how to make macro plans for clients Books, programs, etc. Books, pro- books, and programs to make macro plans for clients. That was the question. Basically, it sounds like they're just trying to understand how to be a nutrition coach and how to go about that, or at the very least, like how to set be a macro coach for someone. Which I wouldn't say is necessarily the same thing as a nutrition coach. But any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would. I would. Okay, I'm going to go off of the books and programs thing first and um, say getting your own coach and like going through it for yourself is really important. Um, That's just like you can't you can't get that same sort of like customized um, education through a book. It's there's just so many like variables and different like specific questions that you could ask that having a coach to bounce back and forth with is just just so valuable. Um, So that would be number one recommendation, but I also really like atomic habits, which I know is not a nutrition book, but I think (laughs) it's been so helpful 
just like that, that kind of stuff. Like once you learn um, just the really like basics of how to set macros, um, the atomic habits type of stuff is going to be so much um, of a help, like a resource for you to give your clients. Uh, So I really like that one. And then books like fat loss forever are great because they'll help you with like the basics of um, setting up nutrition plans and like where to set your protein, carbs and fats and how to adjust those whenever you need to. Um, He's also got one for like more, I don't want to say more serious clients, but like more advanced clients, I guess um, called, the comp, what is it called? Prep competition prep, something or other. It's, I think it's the um, competition prep blueprint. Yes. That one's really good too. It just kind of guides you through um, what to do to prep yourself. And within that, you can learn a lot about like how to make adjustments for people. I really liked that one. As far as like programs or uh like certifications. I know like the biggest ones would be PN, which I, I think we both have, right. I, I have that one. Mm-hmm. You guys, yeah. yeah, you've got that one too. And then um, Mac nutrition is another one, all that kind of stuff. If you already have a pretty solid, like foundation of knowledge with nutrition and macros, that kind of stuff is nice to read through, but I wouldn't expect it to completely change your coaching life (laughs) right do you agree or is there one that you would definitely recommend okay so i think that that i between having a coach and like stuff like atomic habits where you can learn to help people apply it more easily that would be my my biggest recommendation i couldn't agree more um I think having hiring a coach is probably the most helpful thing you can do if you want to learn how to coach people through nutrition and hiring an actual nutrition coach, not necessarily just a macro coach where it's like, Hey, here's your macros. Have a great week. Right. Like actually having someone to coach you through that. I know for me, like when I was in the gym, um, I'm like 2016, 2017 when I was just like starting to understand nutrition very well, but I was still like, I understood macros. I understood like how to set someone's macros but I still was like having a lot of trouble actually like helping people with their nutrition. And for me, like hiring my first coach taught me so much about the application because I could like ask questions like, Hey, or typically they'd explain, like, I know we make sure that we're explaining, Hey, every week, like this is something we talk about. Hey, we're not making adjustments and this is why, or we're adjusting. And this is why, right? Here's what we see within your measurements, within your progress pictures, within how your weight is changing within all your feedback in your training, your recovery, et cetera. And here's why we are or aren't making an adjustment, right? And the thing is, there's no course that I've taken that necessarily gives you that. I would say like PN is good. I don't think they teach you a ton about macros outside of like the basics, like why you need macros. Mac nutrition is great, very in depth, but again, it's not necessarily like, here's how you set and adjust macros. Um, like, but again, like it's like your knowledge of nutrition coaching comes from all these disparate pieces of like this podcast, these podcasts that we've consumed over years, these different courses we've taken, all the clients we've worked with, like what we've seen. So really, I truly don't think there's a better way to learn how to do this than actually just to 
work with a coach and be coached through the application of it. And then past that, I couldn't agree more with what you said about atomic habits um, and like books of that nature. Like, I know for me, one of the most helpful things in my coaching was taking time to really understand how do people develop habits and like, how can I get people to change and develop habits? So like um, atomic habits, the Charles Duhigg's book on ha- book on habits, which I can't recall the name the of The Power right of now. Habit. Yes. And then there's a book, Coaching for Performance by, mm, I can't recall his name either, but I don't remember his name. You read the book, right? Yeah. And I don't, I don't, you didn't like that book as much as I did, did you? If I recall correctly. I, it was good. It was, uh, it, it, to me, like that versus Atomic Habits, which I think I had just read recently before that, it was like, the the just like read it and apply it wasn't mm-hmm. as like one-to-one um but it was very good yeah that's funny that's i feel like coaching for performance for me and it's they're not even like talking about like nutrition coaching yeah but they're talking about like in a business setting but for me it was so easy to like take the examples they use there and like understand okay this is how i should communicate with people i would say like motivational interviewing for what is it motivational interviewing for like training and nutrition professionals or something mm-hmm. like that as well. That's like, that good. that's a good one. Again, I think that I know we've had that conversation. I think it's easy to take it a little bit too far to where like, yeah. just like we can't say like everyone should track macros or everyone should follow keto. Like motivational interviewing isn't always the answer for everyone, but I think uh, in person, that one would be super helpful over email. It's a bit trickier. Yeah. Cause there's that's, like, that's that a lack. great point. That's a very good point. Okay, cool. Um, do you have anything else to add there? No, I don't I don't think so. All right. Next question we have. How do you structure training slash deloads for clients that are newer to training? All right. So very much it's gonna depend. Um, for someone that's new to training, I'll say typically people are gonna need more than three to four days a week of lifting max, right? I'll say most people that are like, hey, I haven't consistently trained or I haven't consistently resistance trained in a smart manner. Almost always, and I know you're on the same page here, almost always we're going to start them off training three days per week. Now, the focus of that is going to be around the primary movement patterns. So basically a squat or a lunge variation, a hinge variation, an upper body push, and an upper body pull. Now we can like get more complex than that, but basically within that, we're trying to make sure that said client has trained each of those patterns at least twice per week. And that'll depend like some clients. So for example, if someone's, if we gauge that someone's recovery ability or their recovery capacity, I should say is a little bit lower. Um, we're probably going to go with like a full body, upper, lower, or an upper, lower, full body, and just have them hit everything with twice per week. Let's see. Can you still hear me? Okay. Uh, but from there, then we're, can you still hear me? Okay. I lost you for a second, but you're back. Sorry. Okay. Can you hear me? Okay. Now you're good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So anyways, from there, um, then we're looking at typically the next thing I'm looking at past, like, okay, what should you be this training split be? And again, like for someone who's higher stress, who we gauge, like maybe their sleep isn't great. 
they as a whole have a little bit less recovery capacity. We're probably going to go with full body upper lower. Whereas someone that typically I'll lean more towards a three day per week, full body split, just because most people can recover from that pretty well. Um, then from there, we're going to look at movement selection within that. Um, and I know this is something we talked about a lot as of late, but typically like someone that's newer to training, I want to make sure that our movements kind of, we can put them in a position to execute these movements while thinking as little as possible and they can do it successfully. So I know we talked about like a couple of weeks ago, like TRX movements are typically ones where someone is going to have to like think so hard about how to execute the movement properly. Whereas like, Hey, could we put them on a machine that would emulate this exact same thing? And they wouldn't have to think about it as much. So typically like, Within movement variation, I'm looking for then like, okay, how can I put them in a position to be as successful as possible with like as little thought as possible? And then over time, like if we want to move to a more complex variation of this, we can. But right out of the gate, I want them to basically master these foundational patterns, squat or lunge, hinge, push, pull without having to like, okay, I really want to think about like what my costal pec is doing right now. And am I really feeling my costal pec or not, right? Like that's typically when we're looking at a program design, that's what I'm looking for. Um, making sure we're taking those boxes as far as patterns go, making sure that the movements are setting the clients up to be successful, that they're not overly complex, that we're not getting too cute with any of that. Um, we're looking for a lot of form videos the first couple of weeks as well. Typically that first mesocycle, I would say like the first three to four weeks of a mesocycle for someone in this situation are just us focusing on mastering form. And then like maybe week three or week four or even week one of the next mesocycle is then typically when we're focusing on getting very dialed in on RIR. So basically the intensity that you're training with after execution is on point. Um, I'll say for most people training like full body three days per week, I don't... I don't ever really think there's a massive need for a deload. I don't know what your take on that would be, but unless like, so like Brian Borstein is someone I know who's currently following like a three day a week strength training split, but he's also been training for, I think like 20 some years at this point. Whereas like most people we have that are following a three day split have been training for like maybe one to two years. Right. And that's because they've been working with us for like one to two years by this point. So there, like your ability to create a significant amount of stress in your body within each movement, your ability to lift heavy loads is just smaller. So typically I'll say like within that, it's very, very rare that they actually need to deload. Like I know I've had clients that have been running like a three day week full body split for months and months and months. And maybe there's like one week where we'll go, Hey, we should try to hit two to three RIR here. And that's kind of like a mini deload past that. I've never really seen a need for and no one's biofeedback has ever indicated that like we need it. Progressions are very good. Um, I'll say like my client, Michaela, she's getting ready for a photo shoot. She's probably the most advanced person. I have only training three days per week just because she doesn't have much time. And she's someone where like at the end of a mesocycle, we'll go through a week where most everything is going to be like just two to three sets. And we will have it like, Hey, I want you to make sure you're at three RIR here. So she can really deload because she can like incur enough fatigue that it does, we can tell it's needed by the end of a mesocycle. But past that, I really don't think that in this case, most people need to deload. Yeah. Somebody like Michaela or like Brian Borstein, they're doing like, well, I, I'm just assuming with Michaela, I actually don't know, but for sure, like I've seen, yeah, I've seen Brian Borstein's um, 
videos and know like his strength program is like squat bench dead, you know, like basically the, the most fatiguing variation of each of those movements. So somebody that's brand new, um, most of the time isn't going to be doing those. Like instead of squat, they might do a squat variation or lunge variation instead of deadlift. It might be like an RDL. And those are just a lot less fatiguing. Um, also Mm -hmm. somebody that's new could do the exact same movement. Let's say like a bent over barbell, uh, row, someone that's new doing that could like fly through 10 of them and get like a little bit of stimulus on their back. Whereas somebody that's very advanced could do that same rep scheme for the same movement and get like a cramp in their, in their lats. Cause they're like isolating that muscle so hard. So like just the, the difference in how much tension someone can place through the muscle with the same movement is so much less than someone that's new. So I think that plays a big role in it too. Like you're just not able to generate enough fatigue, even with the same amount of volume. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, I don't think I have anybody do deloads that's three days per week at all. Um, even now, like taking people through different phases of training. I don't have very many people deload very often at all anyway. So yeah, Yeah. I I agree. I think that the industry pushes pretty hard. Like, or you'll hear like people just like kind of arbitrarily deload like every fifth week or every sixth week or every fourth week. And I know that's something that I did for a while just because I thought it's what you had to do. Now, like Julie, who asked this question is someone who, she has a lot of stress. Um, and over time, like her, the amount of volume we've used with her has lowered and lowered and lowered. She's continued to get better results because of that. But still, she's someone that we do deload. Typically for her, like we have to deload every fifth week. And that's because we're seeing like, okay, like all of a sudden biofeedback is taking a hit. All of a sudden, like I'm having all these, I've having more like aches and pains and all these things that are genuinely signs that we need to take a deload. And for her, like, I would say she's probably one of the clients that have that has to deal the most frequently, but I think like that should be something that's individual. And again, I know like even in the past, like I th- basically would, Hey, everyone should deload every six week. Right. Just I thought that's how it needed to be done. And my perspective on that has definitely changed as well. Um, do you have anything else to add to that? No, I don't think so. Cool. All right. Next question I have for you is, Read that deadlifts aren't for building muscle, more for strength, question mark. I think they aren't a great hypertrophy movement if you're looking at it in isolation. I still like deadlifts for people who want to do them and um, have good mechanics because if you're building up strength in the posterior chain, that's going to carry over into your hypertrophy movements later on. So if you get really strong with a barbell deadlift, then, and you, let's say you add like 40 pounds on it, well, then you're going to carry some of that strength over to being able to use the um, barbell or dumbbells for a Romanian deadlift in the next mesocycle. So like in and of itself, it's not taking any one muscle through like a full range of motion and getting a really like super hard contraction on anything, but I still like them for some people. Like 
I'm not going to put a newbie on a deadlift without me right there in person. Um, but I think that they still have application for somebody that wants hypertrophy. Okay. I'm a little bit blurry still on then like what the application would be from your perspective. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like, so where specifically would you program this for someone? Cause I would say like, okay, the strength gains. Now I, I, I agree with you on this. I'm kind of just playing devil, devil's advocate here. Um, but like you're saying, okay, the strength gains from a deadlift would carry over to a heavier RDL, the next mesocycle. So why wouldn't we just do an RDL this mesocycle and then have an even better RDL the next mesocycle? Because we are also already like master the skill of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think to me, like if somebody enjoys doing a barbell deadlift and they're in a strength phase, then that's just like a big, uh, a big heavy movement that you can handle a lot of weight for. So to me, like it's a slower grind adding weight on an RDL. Whereas if you can get your, your barbell deadlift, super strong, either one is going to like it, whether you stay with an RDL through your strength cycle and add a bit of weight there, or you switch it over and go to a barbell deadlift for a different variation, you're still going to carry that over and improve the RDL later on. But for somebody who really likes it and likes seeing that like strength, like metric based movement increase week to week, I still like them. Maybe that's a, um, uh, just like a bias that I have, but I like them. I, you can handle more weight with those. And so like increasing weight week to week on those is just very fun. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I feel that. I think in a neuro phase, especially like in a strength phase where our, like one of our primary goals here is like power output, right? Mm-hmm. That's a great movement for that. Um, like in the hinge pattern, getting stronger in the hinge pattern to begin. Like if our goal is again, like being better able to express force, it's a good movement for that. Um, deadlifts from a now I would say like as a whole still for hypertrophy, would I choose a deadlift over a Romanian deadlift? No. And some of that too, I'll say is like on deadlifts, almost always people have a tendency to focus primarily on the load moved. Whereas on like on a Romanian deadlift, people are much more focused on the execution of said movement, right? Which I think typically yields better hypertrophy outcomes. Um, if we look at like the stimulus to fatigue ratio, the amount of stimulus we're going to get from a Romanian deadlift versus the fatigue incurred is typically going to be better for and again, like basically building muscle is a game of not just like how much stimulus can we incur, but also can we recover from this? So having more fatigue movements is typically a good idea. But again, like, I think it's about what, like, what's the desired outcome, right? Uh, so I would say for like hamstring development, for example, an RDL would blow away like a conventional deadlift in my opinion. But if we look at like, a glute focus, like a bent knee RDL. Uh, that's pretty, like my bent knee RDL is basically, so like when I do a conventional deadlift, we, like right now I'm in a neuro phase and Alex has programmed for me conventional deadlifts and I do enjoy them. But it's like a, for me, that's basically like just in a bent knee RDL taken slightly further, right? So I'd also say like if it's a, and we also have like, hey, Within that, like we we want the eccentrics, the lower portion of the lift, to be about three seconds, right? And there, I am basically getting like that for me is a great movement for my glutes because it is it is basically like a bent knee RDL. 
Now on the flip side, if it's like, if I was just like yanking the weight up and dropping it, which is how, which isn't necessarily again, like if your goal is just to lift the heaviest weight. So like, like she said, like better for strength. Okay. That's probably the way to do it. But I would say like, if your goal is to get hypertrophy, to build muscle from your deadlift, we probably do want to control that eccentric sum. So for me again, like that's basically like, or like same thing with my prime trap bar, like with my prime bar for me, like a bit in the RDL, basically it's like an inch above the floor, right? It'll like sometimes actually touch the floor when I'm doing a bit in the RDL because we also have those, we don't have to get into that. But anyways, um, so like definitely I do think there's application to it uh, for glutes specifically. Like if we are focusing on the eccentric portion of the movement, I just think it's, you do need to understand like the fatigue side of things, but also say again, like if you are, so basically what I'm describing there is more or less like almost like we're doing an RDL or a bit in the RDL, I guess, instead of a conventional deadlift, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different directions we could take it. I think definitely though, like you said, like if the goal is strength or like force output, which can later. I Okay. And I think that, I think that's what you're saying, right? It's like how a neural phase can later on contribute to our ability to maximally recruit muscle fibers and right. like hypertrophy muscle more in the future. Like it still has application to kind of prime your body for that. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you have anything else to add there? No. <laughs> that was kind of, that answer was kind of all over the place, but I think we kind of came to agreement on that. I think so. <laughs> I, okay. Okay. Um, did that make sense to you? For the most part. <laughs> okay. Okay. It sounded like so, you like you started out saying um you disagree and then you ended up like circling around. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of talked myself through it. Yeah. So I basically until the end, I didn't understand that basically all you were saying was like, we're using a neural phase to better prime ourselves for a hypertrophy phase, right? A deadlift yeah, is exactly. probably yeah. is a great movement for a neural phase, but that will carry over. Okay. So that, that for some reason didn't click with me until right now, but yes. <laughs> yeah. I definitely totally only agree use it in a neural phase. It's, it, it is a lot of like, it's a very high fatigue movement. I wouldn't, try and program that into any other phase but yeah anyway okay. okay we talked i talked my way into agreeing with you so i think we're on the same page now okay next question we have i need to review my precision nutri or renew my precision nutrition certification do you have any suggestions on courses to take um i would say there a mac nutrition is super good I don't know if precision, I don't know like who PN like allows as other bodies to get certifications from to like count as credits towards that. Um, it's probably something I should know actually, but, and you might have a better answer to this. I, I like Mac nutrition for me. Um, basically after I got like into Mac nutrition, I kind of let PN last because there's Mac nutrition now um, for me. So I would say like Mac nutrition is very, very good. That's a year long course. I've also heard that the PN2 course though is very good. Um, past that, I don't know if they, I don't know if they allow like in one, I don't know if there's like any certified bodies that like let them like those count towards renewing your certifications, but all in ones courses are great. Um, ben, 
Is it Ben House? Do you know who I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. He, I've heard of he's like associated with N1 as well. I've heard very good things about his nutrition courses and I really like his content. I would say he'd be someone to check out. Past that, I can't really say there's too many others. I've heard NCI is pretty solid as well. I can't though vouch for them because I've never taken any of their courses. Um, what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I've heard that in or um, PN2 is great also, but it is another year-long one, so that's similar mm-hmm. to Mac. I'd say, mm-hmm. I, I guess I, I don't really understand um, the wording of it as needing to renew it, because they're all competitors. So if you're wanting to, but, and I don't even think it needs renewed. Isn't it just good to go after you have it? I think that they now require, I think they recently changed it to, I think that you have to uh, have like, but I think you can like have other like points basically from other certifications. Oh, okay. Um, So, I mean, if you want to just renew it, you probably are going to have to stick within precision nutrition or like check out whatever they allow. But it's not going to be any of the other ones that we just said because they're competitors. (laughs) Um, but if you just want to like learn a new perspective, I just choose whichever one sounds most interesting to you and go through that. Cool. I don't think I have anything else to add there. Um, I've honestly haven't really kept up on that since I got into Mac nutrition. So, um, next question we have, which I'm going to push over to you. What are some markers you can use to determine your genetic potential for size and or strength? Oh, um, I know there's like, you can, you can measure your wrists and your ankles and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I have not looked into any of that stuff to me, like just my opinion. I don't think it really matters. I think you just set up your programming and your nutrition to optimize. Like if, if your goal is to be the biggest version of yourself, um, set things up to like maximize your, potential and then just execute on it. I don't think it really makes a difference if you know, like this is the absolute biggest I could be. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't looked into that stuff enough to know other than I've just heard that there's some sort of wrist and ankle and like joint calculation you can do. I agree. It's like, is that going to change how you approach anything? Um, if anything, it might limit you, you know, if you're like, Oh, I'm not genetically set up to be huge, then you're just not going to put as much into it or be like, Oh, well, I'm already close. So what's the point? Yeah. I know for me, whenever I have read like the articles where they go into the wrists and the ankles things, like I have, I have tiny wrists and tiny ankles. Like it's supposed to be like, if you can fit, if you can like touch your, it's one of your fingers. And like, if you can touch your, like this finger and this to your thumb around your wrist, then you're probably like, (laughs) <laughs> you don't have great muscle gain genetics. And I was like, fuck, like, <laughs> I'm going to be small. Um, that always just kind of bumps me out. But I'll also say like, I don't even think there's just so much variability because you have like, you have a pretty small bone structure as well. Don't you? I have small wrists. I don't really know. Like my, I don't, I don't think I have like small hip bones or ankles, but I do have small wrists, but then like my husband has huge wrists and tiny ankles. So like, what does that say? <laughs> That's, I feel like, yeah, I, I don't think that it's necessarily like a, even that, like there's just so 
much variability. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. There's like uh, that, um, oh, I think it's an, I think it's an Eric Helms calculation. That's like FFMI. Is that the right one? Mm-hmm. Um, like fat free mass. mass index. Yeah. There's that. So you could do that calculation and see like, what's the, I think it's around 24 if I'm remembering correctly. That's like the potential for someone that's not taking steroids. So you could just do that calculation and see what your weight would be and, you know, assume like a lowish body prep percentage and get close. I don't know. Yeah. That's, as you can tell, neither of us take very much stock in this story. It's (laughs) something that we worry about. Typically, like most men are going to be capable of gaining about 40 to 50 pounds. That's a massive generalization. Most men can probably gain, I would say, 40 to 50 pounds of muscle. Most women can probably gain about 20 to 30 pounds of muscle. And that'll probably put you at like, but again, that's a pretty big generalization. Like you are pretty tall, right? So like mm-hmm. the variance between you, I would think of like, because what are you like five, nine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And like, like Katie's like five, two you probably could put on a considerable amount more muscle tissue than like she has. So it it just varies so much. I, again, like wouldn't, I really wouldn't worry about it. I would say again, like 40 to 50 pounds for most guys is a very broad generalization, maybe 20, 20 to like 35 pounds of muscle for most women. Um, but past that again, like I've heard, like also you'll hear people say like, you know, you've reached your genetic potential because you're dead. Right. Like, and that's really <laughs> the only way to do it because the reality is also like, there's always going to be like, Hey, you could have recovered a little bit better. You could have like gotten a little bit deeper sleep. You could have like pushed a little bit harder or maybe pushed a little bit. Like there's always like more variables. You could have done just a, even just a little bit better job managing to get better results. So I honestly, it's, I would say it's not something that I would, encourage anyone to think about um because i don't think that anyone ever actually truly reaches their full genetic potential do you think uh yeah probably not Uh, like i don't think i don't think even like if we look at a even if we look at like a professional bodybuilder where their job is to just lift eat like the few professional bodybuilders are actually like that they're still going to be like okay i have stress from this thing this thing this thing in my life and even that's like going to be, hey, you're not quite making as good of gains as you could be if there wasn't the stress, right? But we don't live in a vacuum. So I don't think anyone ever actually truly fully reaches it. So thus, there's always more on the table for you. And I would focus more on that than like what your genetic potential potentially is. Yeah, totally agree. Cool. All right. Final question we have. How do you know when to end a building phase and that you have built enough muscle to have noticeable physique changes the next time you cut? I like this question a lot because it definitely does depend. I will say there are some outliers that I have worked with. And I would say this is more common in men that I've worked with than women for whatever reason. Can't explain why that is. But there are some outliers that I've worked with who we have seen like, Hey, we're going through a building phase and you are looking way more jacked, right? Like we can see you've made considerable muscle gains during this time. That's like the, again, that's the outlier. Most people going through a building phase, it is, Hey, we're adding some muscle. We're also adding a decent amount of fat. So 
you are basically like, even though you're building muscle, the fact that we're adding some fat to your frame means that you're not going to see any increases in definition as a whole. You might look bigger, but because you're not going to be seeing more definition, it's going to be hard for you to determine, okay, is this muscle that I'm gaining or is this fat that I'm gaining? Right? So really for most people, we don't see like through a building phase, which is kind of what she's alluding to here. We don't see your physique looking like dramatically different. Now this is different than if you're going through like a recomp phase and you're new to smart training for the first time. But uh, like in a true building phase, we typically don't see like massive changes in a physique outside of like, Hey, yeah, you're definitely not as lazy worth when we started this, um, which is just the reality of it. So within that, what I would say here is one, you want to have seen solid strength improvements Two, I would say that, if you look at the amount of muscle that you're capable of gaining per month, I would say most people it's going to be about one to two pounds per month. I would say, and it's also smart to be realistic with yourself here, right? So I would say like for most men in a building phase, it's probably going to be right around one to 1.2. And again, like keep in mind, we are speaking to someone who is a little bit more advanced. So what I'll say here is, like a lot of listeners of the podcast, if you haven't been training in a smart manner, you haven't had your nutrition on point for a long time, this probably isn't as applicable to you. You're probably capable of seeing quicker gains than this. But again, like and I'm speaking very specifically to Sarah who asked this question, who is one of Andrea's clients who is pretty advanced. Now, even then, like also don't let these numbers limit you because like if you haven't, even like in her case, like there's probably things that have been left on the table as far as her training goes, as far as her nutrient timing goes, her recovery goes in the past. So she could very well be capable of making quicker gains on this, but it's also important to be realistic with yourself. Like I would say for most men looking at, okay, realistically I can gain one to 1.5 pounds of muscle per month. Most women, Hey, probably closer to like 0.75 to 1.25 pounds per month. Would you agree with those numbers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then from there, then it's just looking at, okay, so for me to have a noticeably different physique, I'm probably going to need at least like five to eight pounds more of muscle tissue, right? So I would look at, I would say like in a gaining phase, typically probably about 40 to 50% of the weight that you gain is going to come from muscle. I have probably closer to that 40%. Do you think that's accurate as well? It's hard to say for sure. Okay. I'm just throwing that number out there, but it's, it, it feels right to me. What do you think of that number? Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, that's, that's so hard to, to pinpoint a number, <laughs> but, but again, I would say also like, don't freak out hearing that number because a lot of that is also like, as soon as you add carbs after a diet, you start to look fluffy just because you're filled out and have more water. Right. As soon as you cut those calories back, as to like when you're starting to cut, that goes in reverse too. So right. it, it, I don't want people to think, well, I, that's not even worth it to start to build muscle because I'm going to gain half fat. But it's just right. like, just like you start to feel fluffier pretty quickly after the end of a diet, it goes the same way in reverse. So it's not like you've added all of this actual fat tissue that is going to be impossible to reverse. Yeah. But I mean, the thing to understand there is too, that's why we, we do have a slow rate of gain in a building phase, right? So let's say that over the course of, let's say over the course of five months, you added five pounds of muscle and let's say you added seven pounds of fat. Well, it took you five months to gain that like 
12 pounds total and not five pounds of muscle, you can easily lose seven pounds of fat in seven weeks. Realistically, we could lose seven pounds of fat in like four or five weeks mm-hmm. and have all that muscle tissue still there. That's the thing that I remember as well. Like phallus is a much bigger process than building muscle is. Um, but to answer the question, I would say realistically, you've given it, I would say at least six months is a good marker. Yeah. And I would really say again, like if you look at, okay, how much muscle, and this is going to vary per person, right? Like for the taller you are, the larger your body is, the less like total amount five pounds is going to look like on your frame. Right. So that's important to consider as well. I would like kind of look at, okay, what for me specifically, like what amount of muscle do I think I need to add to um, like have a, to see noticeable improvements. Again, let's say the number of you is five pounds, then it probably would be a good idea to get at the point where you're like 10 to 12 pounds up, right? Again, based off of this number that we just created, where like about, I I, I really do feel like though that's pretty accurate. Probably like 40% of that being gained is muscle is probably the most accurate there um, in general. And again, there's outliers. Um, but from there, then like, that's kind of a good and ensuring also that like throughout that entire time, like you can look back on that time and say, okay, this was a time where I did nail my training. I did nail my nutrient timing. Like my recovery is good. My sleep is good because also it's easy to like in a building phase, just get sloppy and like, yeah, I ate a lot. I kind of went on a dream <laughs> bulk. Okay, cool. I gained 12 pounds. So I'm where I need to be, Right. And it's like the weight gain isn't just the thing. Like the actions had to have been there the entire time as well. But that would be my answer to that. Yeah, you froze just for a second there. I th- okay. That, that's my take on that, basically. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I would agree with all that. I, I think it's so hard to put a cap on it because you could kind of go, like, if you're just patient and, like, accepting the slow rate of gain, you can kind of just keep it open-ended and go for a while until, you know, you feel like you um, are starting to slow down as far as like adding muscle or you're starting to see negative health markers. Like the, I know Sarah's testing blood glucose. Um, we're keeping an eye on that. Or like if you have any other um, like health markers that you're testing and, and you're seeing those start to decline and it's time for a cut or something like that, then you can just kind of keep it open-ended. Like I know um, Sue, she has been building for like over, I think like a year and a half and her pictures look great. And you know, that's a really long build phase, (laughs) but um, if you're patient and doing things the right way, then you can, you can go for a long time and still make progress. I could agree more. Uh, There's a lot of variables there. I would again say, it's probably a good idea to invest in a coach through your first building phase because otherwise you'll probably get in your own head and either a be too aggressive or b cut it short too quickly. But I don't really think I have anything else to add there. Yeah, me either. Cool. All right, team. And that is all we have for you guys. As always, thank you for tuning in and we will catch you all next time.